pull a fast one on you. Most of you will probably have your NASB. I'm going to read it today from the Legacy Standard Bible. When I preach, I'll preach from the NASB, but I'm going to read it for the first time through the Legacy Standard Bible. Psalm 96, follow along. Sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing to Yahweh all the earth. Sing to Yahweh, bless his name. Proclaim good news of his salvation from day to day. Recount his glory among the nations, his wondrous deeds among all the peoples. For great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is more fearsome than all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols. But Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to Yahweh, O families of the earth, families of the peoples, ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory of his name. Lift up an offering and come into his courts. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. Indeed, the world is established. It will not be shaken. He will render justice to the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar as well as, as well as its fullness. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before Yahweh, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you this morning and we thank you that you are a great and glorious God. We thank you that splendor is yours, holiness is yours, majesty and righteousness belong to you. We thank you that you share this wondrous uh, truth of yourself with us, that we might know you, that we might be in awe of you, that we might worship you in the beauty of your holiness. Father God, as we come to this time, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, remind us of the greatness of who you, who you are, call our hearts to deeper, more meaningful worship, worship that not only acknowledges you, but worship that affects our lives in driving us to tell others of the greatness of who you are and what it is you have done for us. May Jesus be praised through this hour, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Jonathan Edwards, a great American preacher and theologian, made this comment. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. God's sovereignty has ever appeared to me, a great part of his glory. It has often been my delight to approach God and adore him as a sovereign God. I don't know what that means to you as you first hear it, but it reminds me that when we approach God, one of the chief considerations is that he is sovereign over all. He rules over all. He is in control of all things. And that's a message that ought to really delight our hearts when we so often fill our minds with Fox News or CNN or whatever's going on in this world. Our God is in control. And Psalm 96 reminds us 
that God is absolutely sovereign over the nations. What's taking place in Iran is part of God's plan. What's taking place in our country is got part of God's plan. What's taking place in China is part of God's plan. He rules over all, and he is working his purposes. This is a truth that I say demands a reverential response. But the psalmist, as we'll see, does not only desire for the people of God to respond with reverential worship. This psalm goes beyond the church of today, and it looks forward to a time, to a kingdom, when all the nations will bow the knee and will confess the sovereignty of our mighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ. What lies before us in this text, then, is the consideration of how any heart that considers God as supremely uh, uh, sovereign over all things could ever remain apathetic. When you truly contemplate the sovereignty of God, how can you sit there and go, oh, no big deal? To be silent, particularly in the presence of God, is sinful. When you've been called to worship, you worship him for who he is. It is to be completely antithetical to be silent in the presence of the majesty of God. The rule of God we know is unrivaled and it is worldwide. Therefore, demanding the praise of all peoples, as the psalm will do everywhere, is what we should be proclaiming as well. We are calling all people to worship the Lord our God. And how do they do it? Through Christ and Christ alone. If Yahweh were merely a regional or local deity, as there were so many in that day, <coughs> If he possessed, possessed only a small dominion, then we would assume that Yahweh should only be worshipped by a, a very small regional group of people. But may it never be amongst the people of God. And may it never be in, in when we consider that the people of God are not local. This is not God's only uh, residence of God's people here at Hope Community Bible Church. God's people are everywhere, and they're worshiping right now, and part of that worship is to call others to come and worship the Lord our God. As the psalm declares, and the rest of Scripture testifies, there is no restriction to God's global dominion. Yahweh is king over the nations of the earth. Therefore, he is to be worshipped by every person. In our text, the psalmist is making an argument that it ought to be con uh, considered, it ought not to be considered too small a thing. Or morally, excuse me, it ought not to be considered too small a thing, and it ought to be considered morally incomprehensible that God should be praised only by a small group of people. For the psalmist himself, he's saying, may it never be that Israel would be the only people that would worship God. And we stand here today as a testimony that Israel are not the only people that worship God because we are part of every tongue, every tribe, every nation. At issue then before us is this truth. And it's kind of the big idea. Because God's sovereignty extends over all the nations, his praise must come from all peoples. This is our desire. This ought to be our goal. 
It is the goal of God, and it will one day come to pass. Psalm 96 is a call to all the nations and to all peoples, imploring them to praise and worship the one true God. Now, in our psalm, we're not told specifically who penned it. It's one of the great Hebrew hymns that celebrates, actually, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalm appears to have been written to celebrate the emancipation of Israel from their Babylonian captivity. If you recall, in 606 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar came and laid siege to Jerusalem, and he took at that time some of the youths from uh, uh, Jerusalem, including Daniel and his three companions, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And then Nebuchadnezzar came back a few years later in 597, and he laid siege again to Jerusalem. And then in 586 B.C., he came one final time, and he destroyed the temple. And that began what we know as the Babylonian captivity. And it lasted 70 years. And the psalm here seems to be that which was written as these, this remnant of Israel that had been in captivity for seven years is now getting to come back to the land. And they are now looking at a new temple, and they are about ready to worship the Lord God for who he is and what he has done. So we would place the writing of this psalm around 516 B.C., again, 70 years after Nebuchadnezzar had ransacked it. Psalm 96 then was a song that was sung by these repatriated Jews who saw in the redemption of the temple the evidence that God is indeed sovereign. God did fulfill his promise. In fact, Daniel, when he was reading, Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah when he realized Jeremiah had been told by the Lord that there would be 70 years of captivity. And in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel writes this incredible prayer. He says, I was reading the prophet Jeremiah and I began to pray to the Lord. And he knew that this restoration, this redemption was coming, that God was going to keep his word. And as we said, saying this morning, these are people who were standing on the promises of God. They recognized that God was sovereign over Babylon. They recognized that God was sovereign over the Medo-Persians and that God was ultimately sovereign over the nations and that he now was making a promise that he would one day establish on the earth a kingdom that would stretch from sea to sea and shore to shore, the very ends of the earth. And this is to be the impetus. This is the inspiration then for global worship. We will sing at least the themes of Psalm 96 in the millennial kingdom because that's of which it speaks. I'd have you note one more thing with me, and that is how this psalm begins, what we find in its center, and how it ends. Note in verses 1 and 2 that there's a threefold exhortation. What is it? Sing. Sing, sing. You know one of my favorite little statements is, if Scripture says something once, well, that's enough. If it says it twice, you better listen up. If it says it three times, whoa, you better check your heart and make sure you've really heard this and are practicing these things. So we have this call for all peoples to offer up to God a joyful worship of song that brings glory to him. Note then in verses 7 and 8, we have another threefold exhortation. What is it? A scribe, a scribe, a scribe. 
we might say in, in modern vernacular, give, give, give. We don't usually use the word ascribe, but what does it mean? We are to give God something. We give our gifts to God. We are to sing his glory. We give our gifts to God. And then finally, note with me, verses 11 and 12, a threefold exhortation that says what? Let, let, let. The psalm ends with this call to joyfully worship God because all government, all nations, all nature belong to him. And so I will use that as our outline, and we'll begin then with our first point, point one, all glory belongs to God, verses one through six. Our psalm begins again with that threefold invitation to sing. What does that mean? Are we literally to sing? Yes. Are we to sing simply in our hearts? Well, not simply. Yes. We're to sing in our hearts. We're to sing with our mouths. God desires, if I could put it in the, this term, God desires his people to delight in him always. And we do that when we sing, when there is a song in our heart and when there is a song that fills our mouths. Here's a reminder then that we do not have a gloomy God. We do not have a depressing God. We have a glorious God who fills the halls of heaven with the anthems and songs of praise that myriads upon myriads of angels sing and of which we are to partake in even now. In verses 1 through 6, we find offered to us three truths of how we are to fulfill this command to sing to Yahweh. And we begin with this thought, what we are to sing. What are we to sing? The psalmist launches immediately into that which God's people are to sing. What song is it? Praise to the Lord the Almighty. What song is it? And can it be? What song is it? Amazing grace or it is well with my soul? Well, the psalmist doesn't identify any of those hymns. He wouldn't have known any of them. But he does identify what we are to sing in verse 1 as what? Sing to the Lord, to Yahweh, a new song. Sing to the Lord, not just the people of God, not just the current people of God, but all the earth. Now, I find it interesting, according to Job 38, 7, we read that the angels sing a song when they watch their mighty maker create the universe. When God was busy creating the heavens and the earth in the space of six days and all very good, the angels were singing. They could not help themselves but to sing his glory. What a glorious sight to have beheld. Recall that in the beginning, when the angels were there, there's nothing. Just blackness and limitless expanse of space. Then what must have been perhaps the most wondrous event of all the universe apart from salvation itself is when God simply spoke a word and it came into existence. Let there be light. And it was so. That God merely spoke and these things came into existence. And the angels sang. And as God began that creative process, this empty vastness of darkness began to be filled with every sort of matter, all sorts of stars and suns and whirling satellites and galaxies and constellations 
filled the expanse. Elements of hydrogen and helium were all hurtling headlong into the vast emptiness until that emptiness was alive and the universe was filled with light and matter all to be governed now by the inflexible laws of physics established by God, yet all rejoicing to do God's will. No wonder the angels sang. We read of the singing of Israel when they got on the other side of the Red Sea. Why would you sing when you got on the other side of the Red Sea? They sang what's called the Song of Moses. Pharaoh and his army had just been drowned in the depths of the sea and swept away. There Israel stood on the shores, seeing their enemy having been vanquished, an enemy that they were they assumed would overtake them and drag them back into captivity. They were finally in this moment at the, at the seashore freed from Egypt. And they were facing now the promised land and their hearts were overflowing with joy. They had seen the mighty hand of God. They beheld the visible presence of the glory that shone before them in a cloud and pillar of fire. No wonder they sang. What else could they do but sing? A song of joy, and they, we have that in Exodus 15. One day, beloved, all the redeemed of the Lord will sing a new song to the Lord God. We will sing it in heaven. We will, there will be a time when the Lord Jesus, who will have the spotlight of heaven shine upon him, and he will take what the scripture says is a sealed scroll that he and he alone is able to open, and he will receive it from God the Father, from the seat of power, and it will be given to him so that he will rule all the earth. And the moment that he takes the scroll... A massive crowd of angelic beings and the, and the leaders of, the, of, of Israel and of the church, they begin to sing what is said to be a new song. It is called not the song of Moses, not the song of creation. This is the song of the Lamb. And you know the words to this particular song. We read of it in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And it says, and they, this, this massive group, sang a what? What kind of song? A new song, a new kind of song, a song that says what? Worthy are you, Lord Jesus, to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's the psalmist's words. That's what this psalmist is seeking to get across. Beloved, this is the new song that will be sung when Christ rules upon the earth. We are not simply to sing this song. The psalmist says, don't just sing this song. He says what? Sing, sing, and when you're finished singing, sing again. This is to be the perpetual song in our heart. This is to be what motivates our worship. For Israel, when they first sing this song, is God's redeemed remnant, having been freed now from the shackles of Babylon. This song was sung as they marched to take possession of a renewed temple, rebuilt amid the ruins and rubble of Jerusalem. For the redeemed of Christ, this song will be what we sing, but it will not just be sung once. It will not just be sung a handful of times. It will be sung for eternity. 
This is the song we are to sing. It's not only the song we need uh, that we are to sing, it's the song we need to sing, the need to sing the song. Look at verses 2, and I'm going to include 3. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his what? Of his salvation. Now, let's be a little more excited than that, right? This is our Baptist moment to really get out there and say something. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his what? Salvation from day to day. Every day is to be the day in which we proclaim this. But notice that the song is sung. It's a proclamation of salvation, and it needs to be sung because it is the means by which we do what? Tell of his glory among the nations, among the heathens, among the unbelievers, this song of salvation, this joy that we possess, this command that we fulfill to sing the new song has an evangelistic missionary tone. It's because of this that Psalm 96 has long been regarded a missionary hymn. If we had no other verse in the Bible but this one to teach us of our duty to reach lost souls of this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, verse 3 would be sufficient, would it not? What is the command? You sing, and as you sing, whether that is with your mouth or in in the depths of your heart, you do so to make a verbal proclamation of God's glory among the heathen, among the unbelievers. Beloved, how can those of us who have been so wondrously immersed in the gospel, how can we who have been ransomed and redeemed, how can those of us who have been forgiven, those of us who know that we are bound for heaven, be content to sit on in the proverbial pews and to... Sing songs of praise to our God, the God who saves, and not say anything to the countless people around us who have not heard the gospel aright or the gospel for the time in which God wants you to proclaim it so that he, by his spirit, can draw them to himself. How can we ignore the missionary implications of our faith and of this verse in particular, this call to tell people of his glory, of his deeds among all the peoples? Can you see why this is a necessary song to sing? This is why we are to rehearse this, this song that reminds us, God is glorious, God saves, I must tell others. I mean, it doesn't rhyme, but sing it however you want. It reminds us of the delight of what it means to be saved by God. And if you delight in being saved by God, it then says you have a duty, and that duty is that you proclaim to others that the God who saves you saves others, that the God who alone saves will save those who call upon his name, who have faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Well, we see what we are to sing. Let us now look where we are to sing. And this brings us again to verse 3. Where are we to sing? Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. You know, as Christians living in the 21st century, and particularly as uh, American or what we would call Western Christians, we are so tremendously blessed by the availability of great music. Well, uh, well, I shouldn't always say great. We're, <laughs> we're blessed by a lot of music. 
Let's say that. We have mass choirs. You can, you can go on YouTube and listen to some of the most incredible choirs that you could ever conceive of. We can come together for conferences these days. In fact, the Gettys have a conference called what? Sing. And we can come together for conferences that focus specifically on what? Singing worship to our God. We have published hymn books and are constantly adding new songs and phrases to our services of worship. We have an availability, uh, an availability of, of, uh, uh, to songs on a scale that's unprecedented in any time in history. There is nothing wrong with this. But we must never forget that there are those around us who have no song to sing at all. We sing in the sanctity and safety of our sanctuary. We sing in the most holy place of our cars, as loud as we can. But do you sing the new song to your neighbor? Do you sing the new song to your friends? Do you proclaim that God alone saves to them? The psalm calls for all peoples to sing praises to God. It reminds us that God's desire for heaven's halls are to be filled with the anthems and praises of people, of those who were once ruined by sin, who had been plunged into misery and were hurrying into endless pain, but now have a new song, a song of praise to our God. And we must take this new song, according to verse 3, where? Out there. We so often reserve our songs for ourselves. I would submit to you that if you truly do have a song that you like, you say, well, I'm not much of a singer. If I sing this to my neighbor, they would throw tomato at me. Why don't you write down the words and say, this is a song that is spoken to me, and I hope it speaks to you, and just give them the words. As you're doing your Bible study and a, a great old hymn comes to your mind, write down those words and share it with someone else. Because God can use that to communicate to them. Because we need to teach people how to sing. Sing in their hearts, sing out loud. And it begins by bringing them face to face with the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Well, what we are to sing, the new song, where we are to sing to the nations, why are we to sing, verses 4 through 6. Note again, why would we sing? I mean, what on earth do we have to sing about? I had to get up early on a Sunday morning. What, why should I sing about that? Psalmist writes what? For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be sung, uh, we are to sing because he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are uh, you, idols, nothing. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Verses 4 through 6, psalmist gives us three motivations for singing our praise to God. Let's note them. Verse 4, the reverence of the Lord. We are to sing 
because of the reverence of the Lord. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We're cool with that. I mean, woo, our God's great. Let's praise him. But he's also to be what? Feared above all gods. Anything else that you think is important, it better take a huge second seat to your God. Why is the Lord to be feared? Because we know scripture declares that the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. You know, any one of us in this room can be exceedingly wise. And you don't have to go to college. And you don't have to have some kind of degree. And you don't have to study a lot of technical books. There's just one book that you need to study. You can have wisdom when you rightly revere and fear the Lord. Beloved, the more we get to know God, the better we can love him. But I would submit to you this, that the more you get to know God, the more you actually will fear him because you start to know better. You know that, I mean, I recognize that having come to faith in 1984, which is some time ago now, and knowing that I needed the, know, I needed the Lord and knowing the fear of the Lord at that time, I know I need him all the more today. And I fear that if God hadn't done what he had done, I would be so utterly lost. It causes my heart to reel. Beloved, out of a healthy fear of the Lord is where knowledge begins. Do you know the very first work of the Holy Spirit upon the human heart to bring about salvation? What's the very first thing Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit does in order to bring about salvation in the soul? It is the work of conviction. The Holy Spirit brings about the sense that you are a sinner that deserves the wrath of God. In John 8, 16, 8, after Jesus declared that he would send the Holy Spirit, the next uh, next, he describes the work of the Holy Spirit. And listen to what Jesus says in John 16, 8. He says, and he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts this world of the nature of sin, of the necessity of righteousness, and of the nearness of judgment. That should bring fear into any unbelieving heart. That the nature of your sin you deserve to die for eternity. The necessity of righteousness without which you will never see the glorious glories of heaven and Jesus Christ. And the nearness of judgment that if you do not repent, today could be the day which is required of your soul. And if you do not know Jesus, you will never Delight in his presence. I find it interesting that in the context of our psalm, we are to, he is to be feared above all the gods because we can consider how the heathen fear their false gods. Our missionaries, the Panjuanis, will tell stories. Of course, they're, they're uh, amongst the very uh, people who are into Hinduism and there's a lot of um, uh, animism and, and belief and there's a God behind everything and they're so fearful that they're going to offend some God. They're fearful of their gods. They grovel in terror before most of them and 
And well, they might, for grim and gory are those false gods. They'll just bring about their so-called wrath if you don't do what they say. But notice that the Lord does not desire this. He does not want people to grovel. He does not say, fear me, so that you'll tremble in some puddle of, of fear and doom. He demands respect that's born out of a conscious knowledge of his wisdom, of his love, of his power wondrously revealed to the soul of him who does not deserve it. And so the call is what? We worship him because great is the Lord. And so greatly he is to be praised. That's such an interesting phrase. Great is the Lord. Wonderful is the Lord. And so you ought to praise him as greatly as you possibly can. I promise you this, not one of us in here have fulfilled that verse. We can worship him more greatly than we do. Well, so we are to sing for the reverence of the Lord. We are to sing because of the reality of the Lord. It says in verse 5, for all the gods of the people are idols, meaning they're just worthless sticks and stones. But what's, what makes our God different? He made the sticks, he made the stones, and he made the heavens. The word gods in verse 5 actually comes from a general word used for God, El, Elohim, but it contains a negative participle, and so with that negative participle, it means the good-for-nothings. These are, the for all the good-for-nothings of the people are idols, They are non-entities. They are powerless. They are meaningless. They exist only in the fantastical imagination of the minds of the people. They do nothing. In contrast, it is the Lord, it is Yahweh who did what? Made everything that you can possibly imagine. He made the heavens and the earth. What a motivation for singing. I mean, if the angels sing because God created, how much more ought we to sing because God created? We are called then to consider that our God is the true and living God who made all things out of nothing and did it by his own omnipotent power. What is, again, the very first description we have of our God given in the Bible? I'm letting you think about that for a moment. In the beginning, God created what's the first description we have he's the creator he made all things and therefore we owe him because he made us and therefore we sing and finally we notice the renown of the lord in verse six we sing because of the renown of the lord splendor and majesty are before him strength and beauty are in his sanctuary i'm just blown away the psalmist is you say, well, he's only used four descriptions there, but it's just like, how can I communicate this to you? The greatness of our God, the wonder of our God. Consider carefully the fourfold, fourfold description of our God. He is the God of splendor. He is the God of majesty. He is the God of strength, and he is the God of beauty. As the repatriated Jews stood before the rebuilt temple, the one that had been laid waste for 70 years, they longed for the glory of God. They wanted to behold his splendor, his majesty, his strength, and his beauty. 
Some of them would have known of the story of Solomon at the dedication of the temple 450 years earlier. That was a time when God, as they stood before the temple, the glory of the Lord so filled the temple that those who were in it had to rush out. And here the psalm says, we're waiting for the glory and the splendor and the majesty and the strength of the beauty and beauty of the Lord to once again return and fulfill the temple. Does not seem that they saw what the previous generation had seen. But having read the word of God, they knew without seeing God that he was no less splendorous, no less majestic, no less powerful and no less beautiful. And this was cause for them to sing God's praises. They also knew the promise of God's glory would one day return to that temple. And the glory of the Lord did, in fact, return to that temple. Do you know what's already happened? The glory of the Lord that's being spoken of here, it did return to the temple It will again, but it returned to the temple some 400 years later when our Lord Jesus Christ graced it with a glory not of this world. When Jesus first came, though he was not renowned, he was not recognized, he was not known, nor was his glory recognized or understood. But I say this to you, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus said something. He said, I'm coming back. And when I come back, all the splendor and majesty and strength and beauty of his glory will be seen in the sanctuary that will blow away what Solomon and all of those people saw. It'll be a glory that will be unveiled at last. It will not be like that which was only seen by Peter, James, and John on some mount, lonely mountain, but it will be shown to the entirety of mankind in that day. Tell me if this is not reason to sing praise to our God. Our God is going to blow away all of us with his glory. So our psalm begins with this threefold ex- exhortation, sing, 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 and we are seeing Because of the glory, where we sing because of the glory that belongs to our God, we sing so that our song is heard throughout the earth. We sing physically or uh, within our hearts so that our lives are a declaration of the greatness and the wonder and the splendor and the majesty and the strength of our great God so that others will see, others will hear, others will bow down, and others will worship the Lord. So we worship the Lord because all glory belongs to God. But let's look at our second point. All gifts belong to God, verses 7 through 9. Here's our second trio, verses 7 through 9, calls us to do what now? Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Again, ascribe is not one of those words we, we use, and so you can just say this. We could put it this way. We are to give, give, give to the Lord of our gifts. That's what the psalmist says. Give to the Lord your gifts. Well, let's see how that works out. We are described to the ascribe to God our wonder. We give to God our wonder. Notice verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. You know, in ancient times, 
when a person approached a sovereign king, something was required of him. You never went to a sovereign king, how? Empty-handed. You always brought to the sovereign king a tribute. You brought to him a gift. You gave to him a token by which you signified your submission and reverence. Now, we Americans pride ourselves on not bowing down to a king, right? Our rugged individualism. As Christians, though, we do most certainly have a king. And how can we do anything less than what has been understood as being historically the responsibility of every person who comes before an earthly king to have a gift if we do not ourselves come before the Lord Jesus Christ with a gift. A gift of wonder, a gift of worship. In our text, we have learned that God desires from us what? You ready for this? Well, in our text, the glory do his name. Now, you figured that one out with me. Let's contemplate that for just a little bit. How do we, unglorious as we are, ascribe to God, give to God as a gift offering the glory to his name? All we have is our lives. All we can do is lay ourselves and say, here I am, Lord, use me. Here I am, Lord, send me. This means that God desires then for us to acknowledge him for who he is and what he has done. This is what comes first. It begins with saying, here I am, Lord. I worship you for who you are. We are to give to him the gift of our acknowledging, the gift of our wonder for his infinitude, for his very being. He is glorious in all that he's done for us. Have you ever just tried to put your head really around the being of God? <laughs> I mean, just try it sometime. What is God like? Just start writing things down. Your list will just keep going and going and going. I submit to you that this is a call to stop and consider God. This is a call to cease your striving and know that, as God says, I am the Lord. In this world of fast food, fast streaming, fast communication, let us not be shallow in our contemplation and then our proclamation of the wonder of God. We just want everything right now, right? Well, we ascribe to God not only our wonder then, but we are to ascribe to God our wealth. Verse 8, the end of verse 8, bring an offering and come into his courts. We're reminded that giving of our material wealth is part of the life of faith. God expects that we will honor him with an uh, uh, out of our substance with sacrificial giving, not because he needs it, but because he graciously makes it possible for us to express in a tangible way something of the gratitude of our hearts. So in one sense, the more that we can give him, is the, it's this big expression, God, you've given me everything, so I'm going to try to just give it all back to you. You know one of the neat things about God? Neat, that's a theological term. You can't outgive God. You try to give it all to him, and what does he do? He, he'll just give it back to you. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were required to bring sacrifices and offerings. They were expected to give a tithe of all that they had. A tithe is a, a form of a religious tax, 
a mandatory 10% of all their income. It was actually more than that, but required to support the work of the priests and of the Levites. And the tithe extracted from the law is not one of the principles that governs us in the church age. We do not tithe. We are not called to give 10% to the Lord in the, new in the New Testament church. You want to know what the New Testament church is actually called to, to uh, give to the Lord? Everything. It's the exact opposite. Like, oh, wow, I'm, under the, I'm not under the law. I don't have to give 10%, which actually, if you did it, the math right, it's 23 and a third percent every year. I don't have to give 23 and a third percent now. I'll give my 1%. You know, the average giving in the American church is like 3%. So they're not even keeping the law, but we don't have to keep the law. But according to the New Testament, it all belongs to the Lord. And the real idea would be trying to give as much as you can to the Lord and live off the rest. What can you live off of? God expects New Testament believers to be expressing what we call proportionate giving, giving according as the Lord has prospered you. And certainly we cannot give less under grace than what was demanded under the law. In fact, if, we, if our minds and our thinking is correct, we should give a great deal more than that which was expected under the law because we are under grace. We are able to give to the Lord from our wealth. So much more that could be said to that, but I just leave that to your thinking. Finally, we're told to ascribe to God our worship. Worship the Lord, it says, in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. It's sometimes hard for us to imagine, but if we will take the time to carefully read through the furnishings of the tabernacle, you can read that in the uh, in beginning in uh, the closing chapters of Exodus. You look at the furnishings of the tabernacle and of the holy place and the most holy place. You, what are you presented with? You are presented with works of art. You are, you are confronted with gold fittings and fine tapestries and all sorts of well-woven uh, curtains. There's gorgeous colors. They made the reds were of the deepest red and blues of the deepest blues and purples of the deepest purples. The veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place was so wonderfully ornate. All the furnishings and fittings were made of this gleaming gold. If you were to walk into the holy place and to see it, you would be in awe of the place of worship as being so wonderfully outfitted. And God himself planned it so. The priests in the holy place worshipped in the beauty of holiness. God deliberately joins two ideas together here. True holiness always produces true beauty. You want to be beautiful? Be holy. And when you're holy, you will be what? Beautiful. Because God is holy and God is beautiful. True holiness will always produce true beauty. We've all met people whose personal holiness has resulted in a transformation of their very countenance. They walk into the room and everybody lights up. You see their worship of the Lord. We are called to give God our worship, true beauty and true holiness. And that brings us to our final verses then and our final point. All government belongs to God. All government belongs to God. We've had the sing, sing, sing. We've had the ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Now look at the final trio in verse, verses 10 through 13. Let, let, let. 
Uh, we'll get to ver the let in verse 11 in just a moment. Here we find that God's people are to pray for, look for, and expect the coming of his rule on this earth. Until then, we're reminded that all government on this earth belongs to him. Let's consider first the principles of God's coming government. Look at verse 10. And the principle of God's, this should be up there. Point A, here it is. Say among the nations... So this is the people of God are to do what? Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Beloved, when the Lord Jesus comes and sets up his earthly millennial kingdom, three principles will be true that we can flesh out from this. Number one, absolute sovereignty. Absolute sovereignty. Look, say among the nations what? The Lord reigns. No one else reigns. Our God reigns. Perhaps I need not remind you, or maybe I didn't need to, that God's ideal form of government is not a representative republic. God's ideal form of government is not a democracy. God's form of government is not found in a Democratic Party platform. May it never be. Platform of death. Nor is it found in a Republican Party platform. God's ideal form of government is not government of the people, by the people, or for the people. While that perhaps is the best form of government that man can conceive, it is not the best government that God has conceived. The best form of government, according to Scripture, is a benevolent dictatorship. It is an absolute monarchy with all the power concentrated in just one person in the capable hands of God's benevolent son, Jesus Christ. This is the coming government. The Lord reigns absolutely. Not only that, there will be absolute security. Look, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Under the government of our benevolent dictator, the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be no wars. There will be no uprisings. There will be no insurrections. There will be no crime syndicates flourishing in some underworld. There will be no corruption. Our Lord's government will be a reign of just, holy, impartial, and universal laws. The foundations of society in the millennial kingdom will be so secure that nothing will be able to challenge them. Satan will be bound. The saints will reign with Christ. Sinners will be unable to express their disruptive ambitions and lust. It will be a time of absolute security. It will also be a time of absolute sanctity. He will judge, it says in verse 10, the people's how? With equity. In the millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, there will be no corruption in the legal processes. There will be no partiality, no injustice, no bias, no racially motivated laws. All peoples will be treated with sanctity, with absolute equality under the government of King Jesus. All lives will be regarded as sacred. Is that not a reason to sing? Well, that brings us to the final point here, the prospects of the coming government. The psalmist ends by having the readers consider the prospects of this, the wonder of this coming government 
and all that it affects. What does it affect? It affects, first of all, nature, verses 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will, what? Sing for joy. Do you think they literally sing for joy? They, do they have mouths? No, there's, there's, there's something in the way the trees go about, creation goes about, that expresses this glory to God. Why? Before the Lord, that's all to sing before the Lord. Why? Not that he has come, but he is coming. Here is our prayer. Here is what we're looking for. I find it fascinating that I taught from this passage at youth camp that in Romans 8, Paul links the longing of creation to be glorified and restored with the revealing of the sons of God in glory. In Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 21, consider what Paul wrote and see if he's not echoing some of these principles. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed, revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the, son, of the children of God. When we are glorified, when God finally comes, and this process of sanctification is ultimately complete, and we are transferred no longer to have reference to sin whatsoever, and we're fully glorified, fully made like Jesus, the creation itself is glorified. And it begins the scene. I love how the J.B. Phillips translation uh, puts verse 19. It says that creation waits, uh, of the statement creation waits eagerly. He says creation is standing on its tiptoes. The idea of the word is you're stretching your neck out, trying to see around the corner. Beloved, dumb nature will find a voice with which to sing praise to God. The God who has saved and glorifies his people through his son. And I ask, if, the, if nature can do it, how much more ought you and I to be sing, sing, singing? Is this not a cause for joy? Well, it not only affects nature, but finally it affects all nations. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. Our psalm comes to this glorious climax. So often when we think of the Lord's coming in judgment, we paint the terrors of the day of the Lord. And indeed, there will be terrors more than we can imagine. But we must remember that the purpose of the coming of the Lord is not to terrorize. It is to be for him to be glorified. There is to be gladness when he judges. The predominant thought behind the word judgment in our text then is not judgment or punishment excuse me but the ushering in of a peace and a praise and such a perfect government that all there is to do is to sing praise to God so while we await that coming day let God establish these principles of government in our hearts that we would be a people who delight in his absolute sovereignty, who dwell in his absolute security, and recognize that in Christ we are all one, all equal, and all have perfect sanctity. Therefore, let us sing to the Lord a new song. 
Let us ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name and let us long for his coming. Let me close with a New Testament passage, which again, I believe so wonderfully echoes these words. Look, listen to me as I read for you Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. That should be the next slide. Maybe. No, not backwards. Is there one more slide going forward? Is there one more slide if you go forward again? It's like we're going backwards. Okay, well, I'll read Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. Okay. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing what? Salvation, what we're supposed to be singing to the Lord about, to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, for he is coming. Until then, this is the God who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds, those that will bring glory to his name. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this psalm a psalm that calls us to rightly worship you, a psalm that calls us to rightly proclaim you, a psalm that gives us ample motivation to rejoice in who you are and what it is that you have done. May we be a people who tell of your glory among the nations. May we be a people who constantly have the new song of salvation within our hearts and then upon our lips, so that others will hear and may come to sing that new song with us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.